So, Joel, which of the Chronicles of Narnia movies do you love the most? I think we should be done right here. Great books should not be made into movies, and the Chronicles of Narnia definitely should have never been made into film. Well, why would you say that? I mean, like, there's some wonderful scenes. They and... are completely different genres. Uh, literature is meant to draw the reader into an experience. Uh, film is a very different type of media. And so the fact that there have been some great films based upon great books uh, doesn't change the fact that as a general rule, you should not confuse the two genres. Yeah, but why, why shouldn't somebody find inspiration for a great movie in a great book. He could find inspiration, but he needs to be creative and write an original screenplay rather than just ripping off somebody who already did wonderful work. Well, it seems to me like that's like saying um, it's too derivative for you, but isn't all art derivative? Every time a sculptor sculpts something, doesn't he sculpt it based off something he's already seen and experienced? Absolutely, and every story is echoing the true story, the true myth. But the point is that each writer needs to do that in an original way. And a lot of screenwriting that's based upon great books shows that the screenwriter does not understand something important about that original book and frequently changes features that are central to the original so piece. So what you're really saying is that they need to make the movies more faithful to the books than they often do. That, that, that would be a nice start, for sure. But I would rather they just not try at all. <laughs> There is one possibility in this whole conversation that you're not considering. Okay. You're a grumpy old man. I have been since I was 10 years old. Yeah. That's true. Are you ready to start? I guess so. Okay, good. Welcome back to the Totally Legge Podcast. I'm Joel. I'm Joel. Oh. Oh! Ah. We should have practiced that. Yeah. I'm Joel. You're Joel. Who am I? Jacob. Okay. Yes. And we're here to talk about the great books, how to read the great books, why to read the great books, and uh, to encourage you in doing that very thing. Okay, so today we are talking about uh, how to read a book, and uh, we're going to talk about a classic by Mortimer J. Adler, uh, and we're going to develop some ideas that you have been putting out on Substack recently. But before we get to that, I've got a few lightning round questions. Here are you ready? Go. I'm ready. Okay. Uh, cake or pie? Cake. All right. Jolly Ranchers or bubblegum? Bubblegum. Not a Jolly Ranchers fan. Would you rather sleep late or take a power nap? I would definitely rather sleep late. The Iliad or the Odyssey? Probably Iliad. Wow. Uh, would you rather watch a movie that you've seen before, dubbed into a language that you don't understand, or watch a foreign language film that you've never seen with English subtitles? Oh, I think I'd rather watch one I've seen before dubbed into a language I don't understand. That would be fun. That would be fun. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. All right, so what have you been reading lately? <laughs> A lot of things, Joel. Um, one thing I finished just recently, and this was a first read for me, uh, was The Education of Cyrus by Xenophon. Mm. And I really liked it. Yeah. Uh, and actually, there's a lot of elements to it that surprised me. One being that it had some good comedy in it, which I just wouldn't have expected. 
um, but a lot of practical wisdom as well, things that I think we could even apply to the Christian life. Plenty of good paganism as well, you know. <laughs> right, right. But very interesting, and especially because Cyrus uh, ends up fitting into the biblical story. Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's pretty fascinating to, yeah. to get that background. So, awesome. How about you? Cool. What have you been reading? Yeah, um, uh, this week I reread uh, The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. I'm almost always reading something by Chesterton throughout mm -hmm. the year, yeah. but uh, my reading uh, load has been such that the last couple of months I haven't been actively reading Chesterton, and it's really... Uh, been sucking my soul dry. So uh, I had the opportunity to reread The Everlasting Man. And this was probably the third time that I've read that book. I don't reread it every year, but I'm, I was wondering this week why I don't have it on my re yearly rereading list. Um, because you have to leave room for new books, too. Uh, uh, a little bit of room. A little bit of room. But it is. New old books. Just, yeah. It's just magnificent. It is so good. And it reinforced something that we have talked about previously and we'll talk about a lot more on the, the show, and that is that the value of rereading great literature is that even though I've read this book several times, uh, it was like reading it again for the first time. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was discovering passages anew that I know I've read before, but I had never noticed before. And other passages that I came back to that I appreciated so much more uh, than my previous, you know, encounters, and uh, it was just, it was just a delightful, delightful read. That's great. I also finished this last week, um, a really short book, uh, but by Joseph Pieper, mm -hmm. uh, Only the Lover Sings, oh. and it's just a, it's kind of a collection of short writings by him, uh, reflecting on Christianity and art. Um, I just really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I enjoy everything that man writes, though. Uh, probably one of my favorite uh, modern philosophers uh, because he's not really a modern philosopher. Right, right. <laughs> he's he's a pretty medievalist in his own thinking. But and I think you and I both discovered Pieper the same way through James Shaw's work, uh, and uh, yeah, and have both kind of grown to love him. Although you've read him much more extensively mm -hmm. uh, than I have, I'm still collecting. Yeah, so. now I, I I really. I don't know if I'll ever do it or not, but I really kind of want to write a biography on him because mm -hmm. the more I learn about him as a thinker, but also just kind of his own situation and history, it's yeah. interesting. You know, a German philosopher lived during World War II um, with a publishing company that kind of resisted Hitler. You know, mm -hmm. it's really, yeah, it's some interesting stuff. So. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So we are talking about how to read a book uh, by Mortimer J. Adler and Charles Van Doren, uh, two scholars that contributed in significant ways in the mid to late 20th century in kind of a revival of great books learning. Uh, they co-edited the Great Books of the Western World series that were published uh, in 1954 and uh, again in a second edition expanded uh, collection in 1990. Uh, uh, Adler was a professor at uh, the University of Chicago and uh, a philosopher, uh, just a, a great uh, thinker in terms of contributing to a great book's emphasis, recognizing that we stand as part of a Western tradition, that we participate in a great conversation, and that the major literary works throughout the history of Western civilization need to be read in that way. Uh, this is a book that they put together on how to read a book. And uh, I read this uh, for the first time uh, many years ago, have gone back through it uh, a couple of times since, and just find it to be a, a delightfully encouraging book. Uh, it is, it is uh, maybe a little more uh, technical 
than some books that have been written in, in this kind of way. Sometimes I've, I've read books about how to read that are themselves more literary, that are almost more poetic, uh, that are kind of awakening the desire to read. This book is more about the mechanics of how to read a book, and yet every time I've gone through it or taken students through it, uh, I've found that it really does awaken an excitement because you feel like now I know how to take a large book, a difficult book, uh, maybe a classic work, and break it down and understand it. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about this book is if you have already been a reader, so you have just a long time been reading lots of books, you spend a lot of time in books, you're not, you're preferring that over television more than not, right? Um, I think if you come to how to read a book for the first time and you start scanning through it, you realize, I actually already have some of these habits, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like um, with logic or with any other, uh, any other discipline that's a science, right? It's a science because there are kind of unwritten rules mm -hmm. about how to do something well. And if you're practicing it, you're already doing some of those things. Uh, and then you come and you look at it closer and say, oh, okay, so this is, this is just clarifying some of the practices I already have, and then adding to it and, and, and say, here's how you can go deeper and further. Um, I just think that's kind of interesting. As I, was, as I was scanning through it again the other day, I was thinking about how much of these things that I just did as a course of habit, and yet there's a lot more to it that, that can take me even further because he clarifies these points. And I think this is an important point, not only for what we're going to say about the book, but also about some of the other uh, suggestions that we're going to make today. And that is that you, you take what is beneficial, you don't take it as a prescription that has to be followed in every respect. Because I think you're right, a, a, an experienced reader, a good reader, is already going to find that they know and practice a lot of the things that are in the book. There may be other ideas that are useful to them uh, that they could pick pick up things that they could learn and, and incorporate into their own reading habit. At the same time, there are going to be other things that they might just say, you know what, that's just not, uh, that's not useful to me. That's not the way that I like to approach a book. And that's okay. Different approaches work for different people. Uh, sometimes I like to illustrate these kinds of things by saying there's a line here. And on this side of the line, there's a lot of different options, a lot of different ways of doing a particular thing that are all right, that are all good, that are all useful. There's some things on the other side of the line that are just wrong. There are wrong ways of reading a book because you're not actually understanding what the author's trying to say. You're rewriting it in your own image. Okay, that's a bad way of reading a book. But, but there's not just one right way. There are multiple ways of tackling a great work of literature, and Adler and Van Doren are, are helping us discover some of, those, some of those things. So I'm curious just right off the bat, give me one of the wrong ways. Yeah, well, I think that approaching a great book, and rather than asking initially, um, what does the author mean, s simply saying, what does this mean to me? I think that's the wrong way of approaching yeah, a that, piece of that's literature. That's how you study the Bible, not a great book. Right? <laughs> Please don't study the Bible that way. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is the way a lot of people study the Bible, right? But it's kind of this postmodern uh, reader response approach to literature that, yes, unfortunately has pervaded a lot of evangelical approaches to Scripture, but, but really any kind of literature. It's this idea at the, at the most egregious level that you have your truth, I have my truth, and what's important is not what a particular author meant in the particular context that he was writing, but really, what does it mean to me? Mm. Well, now the, the book doesn't even have an author. You are the author, and you're just like, forget about reading the book. Just write your own book at that point. Uh, so I think that's a wrong way 
of approaching a great book. The first thing I need to understand is what is the author saying? Uh, I need to put myself in his shoes, try to understand him in context before I begin to evaluate whether what he's saying is yeah. true, good, and beautiful. Actually, that makes me think of the book I just mentioned a few minutes ago, Only the Lover Sings, uh, when Joseph Pieper was talking about what makes true art, what makes a great artist. It's this kind of passive receptivity, this, this ability to see what is really there. Hmm. Um, and I think this could be applied all over the place today, uh, obviously with great books and reading. Uh, but, but this is a problem in our culture in general is the unwillingness to just passively receive what is true. Yeah. What is what is real in the world and then respond according to that reality. We constantly have people wanting to make everything after their own image. And in the process, they're actually destroying their own image. It's an idolatrous way of reading. But but you're exactly right. It is it's destructive. It's destructive of, you know, the human person. Right. Uh, as I'm making things in my own image, I am I am destroying creation itself, but I'm a part of creation. And so in order to preserve and and uphold the dignity and beauty and value of the created, I first have to direct my eyes to the creator. Right. And obviously that's that's a transcendent aspect uh, that uh, that we are always looking for in great literature. But we're finding preeminently in divine literature, the scriptures. Right. Um, but uh, but yeah, that kind of idolatrous approach to literature is itself destructive, even to rationality and and uh, uh, and human dignity. I think in a lot of ways. Interesting. So now you've got me thinking whether uh, the the best readers are Christian readers. I I I would argue without a doubt that they should be <laughs> right. Uh, maybe their uh, Christians are not always the best readers, right. uh, but they should be because they're equipped already to see the true, good, and beautiful with a clarity that those who do not have the Spirit cannot yet. Uh, perceive. So let's come back to how to read a book for a second. Uh, I've as as uh, been hearing feedback on the last couple of episodes. Uh, people have asked me, you know, what 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 book are you doing next? What essay are you doing? And and I told them that we're going to do a, an episode on how to read a book. And um, and I've had some people tell me more than one tell me I've never actually read that book. And uh, I wanted to say a word about that because I think it's it's important to say this book can actually be used as a reference text. And I think that that's perfectly appropriate. I have read the book. I've read it more than once. Uh, that's the kind of thing that I do. I read even reference books at least one time. Uh, but I don't think that everybody has to do that. I think uh, the way that the book is structured, uh, it's it's a very analytical. Uh, you can kind of go through the table of contents. In fact, you can apply some of the principles of how to read a book that we're going to talk about that are in the book. You can apply it to this book as well. And you can take what is useful. You can dive in and find the sections that are going to aid you in the particular ways that you most benefit from. You don't necessarily have to read it from cover to cover. And so even if a person doesn't read the book, how to read a book, I think you will benefit from the content that's in it. Have you read Kate Turabian's entire manual on style? Uh, almost. Uh, yeah. So I have to admit that uh, that's an example of uh, the kind of reference book that I might. But I, I, I've never sat down and just like cover to cover from page one to, to the last page read it's it. It's a page turner. It is uh, a little dry. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar, uh, Turabian is a style guide for uh, the humanities. And yeah, not uh, the most enlightening. I spent a lot of time like paging through though and reading most of the sections in that book, yeah. yeah. While, uh, I've gotten more familiar with it than I ever wanted to be, I yeah, can tell you that. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. 
All right, so let's talk a little bit about this book. Uh, Adler and Van Doren, uh, they start out by talking about two types of reading. Uh, they talk about reading for information and reading for understanding. I think one of the critiques that has been made by other commentators and that can legitimately be made is that maybe we need a third type of reading as well, and that is reading for pleasure or entertainment. That is, they acknowledge that that's a type of reading, but that's not really the type of reading that they're addressing here. And, and in fairness, I think, uh, you know, when we're reading for pleasure, when we're reading for entertainment, uh, we're not trying to dissect the book. We're just experiencing it. That's true, but at the same time, I would say these things aren't mutually exclusive. Definitely not. I mean, in fact, I would actually argue that uh, reading for information and understanding are prerequisites to actually enjoying. I mean, how, how can you really enjoy even a great story if you can't regurgitate the basic story, the details of the story, right? And, and say, this is what it's about and this is why I liked it. That's so a good it, point. It, you know, it's really all there. That's a good point. It's just a different, it's just a different kind of experience because it's maybe more immediately pleasurable, and actually, arguably, maybe that pleasure of reading teaches us to do some of these things better that we wouldn't, you know, this is why, this is why uh, as a teacher of, of seventh graders, right, uh, I'm very careful about the books I select as we're kind of like ramping them up into the great books. I want them to have pleasure in reading while reading really good stuff. So I don't drop them off and Kant in seventh grade, right, <laughs> you know? Right. I want them to eventually be able to read that kind of book, you know? But we spend time going over the Greek myths and we go over Norse mythology and we, you know, read these great stories that are intriguing and interesting, but I still require that they're able to give me who are the main characters, you know, what happened here, you know, why do you think that happened? and. And that doesn't take any pleasure out of the reading. That's a great point. Uh, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about the fact that when I've seen a movie that, I, that didn't make sense to me, that I didn't understand, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, when I've read poems that I just the, the structure was, you know, obscure to me, I, I did not, I wasn't able to follow what was being said. I didn't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. uh, that in many ways, a certain base level of understanding is necessary for enjoyment. You're not going to be able to get the same kind of pleasure out of something that is just an, enig an enigma to you. Yeah, I think the only exception I can maybe think of, maybe you have a thought on this too, is just uh, maybe in certain forms of visual art, mm -hmm. right? That might yeah. that may be excluded. You might be yeah. able to look at something and see it, and that's beautiful it's or beautiful, this is but wonderful, I but I don't get it, you yeah. know. And so that's that's a little different, and maybe yeah, that's fair. Worthy of discussion sometime how the visual arts can be different from yeah. from these kind of things. But. Stay tuned for an episode on the <laughs> aesthetics of yeah. you know yeah uh, of all of this. Um, yeah, so so they're talking about how to read for information, looking at really the question of, of what, you know, what, what data do I need to mine out of a particular work? And then reading for understanding where I'm trying to answer the question of why and, and, and seeking to grow in my enlightenment. Um, they also talk about two different types of learning. They talk about the learning that happens through instruction where we're sitting down trying to communicate to a person, um, uh, you know, some facts or some skill uh, as opposed to learning by discovery where a person through their own process of exploration is acquiring knowledge and competence in something. And obviously reading the great books uh, is, not, is not supposed to be primarily a matter of instruction. Uh, you might have teachers, you might have mentors, you might have people who are helping lead you down a path, but reading the great books is preeminently a matter of discovery and learning by exploration and um, 
you know, the, the authors of the, the works are now your teachers, and you are going and meeting them in the page. Yeah, and this is, you know, both are necessary. I want to make that point very clearly. Yeah, sure. We need didactic, top-down teaching. We need to be told, do not steal, right? We need to be told, this is the right answer sometimes, right? But it's a whole different thing when people come to experience themselves for themselves. Um, this is part of awakening what we call the, the moral imagination. Uh, so, you know, you can imagine that a, a student uh, might say, well, if, if somebody in front of me in the line opens their billfold and it's full of $100 bills and they accidentently drop one, right, why shouldn't I keep that, right? I mean, they have lots of it, you know. And, uh, but, but they need to uh, maybe see more of the story to think through what, so they may, okay, first of all, they know you shall not steal, right? Mm -hmm. So they should know it's just wrong because they've had that kind of didactic instruction, right? But what they need to learn experientially is why that might be wrong, right? right. So if you, you awaken their imagination and you say, oh, that, that billfold full of money, what if that was actually about to be donated to charity? Maybe he collected all of that, right? And mm -hmm. you're, oh, I never thought about that, right? You know? And so experiencing story um, and, and encountering things in, in real life that speak to these same didactic truths, right, right. is really important because mm -hmm. it helps us to think in different dynamics other than just the didactic rules. Yeah, yeah, that's a great observation. Uh, so uh, the the book talks about levels of reading, and this is where we'll spend you know most of our most of our time today, and and really in the third uh, category, I think. But uh, four levels of reading that we can think about. The first being the elementary level. Uh, what is the book saying? Or what is a paragraph saying? What is a sentence saying? This is the most foundational. In some ways, it is. It's the. It's the kind of reading that you can't progress beyond until you have answered these questions. If I don't know what this chapter is about, then I'm not going to be able to understand what the book is about. And I'm not. And if I don't understand what the book is about, I can't do anything else with it. I can't know uh, to assess whether it is true or not. Uh, so that elementary level is, is what is this saying? The second level of reading would be the inspectional level, and that is looking now, what kind of a book is this? Uh, how am I going to categorize? What, what is the book saying, and where does that fit into a larger theme or a larger category of literature? The third level would be the analytical level, and what does the book mean, not just what is it about, but what does it mean in terms of what it's saying about this topic, about this theme, and we are evaluating that. Uh, is, is it true? Is it useful? Is it beautiful? Uh, that analytical level is a level of discernment in many ways. And the fourth level would be the syntopical level. How does it compare with other books? Every great book is in conversation with other great books. And so syntopical reading is where we're not just reading one particular work of literature, but we're really reading across the canon, across uh, many centuries of literature. So these are the four types that uh, Adler and Van Doren are going to kind of introduce us to. Yeah, and in, in chapter three of, of this book, How to Read a Book, um, in the elementary reading section, he talks about four basic stages. There's the reading readiness, simple reading, expanded reading, refined reading, and this kind of uh, pedagogically, this growth in the student's ability to to really take in a book. And and reading readiness is you know the early physical development. I just want to say one thing about that. Um, if you are a parent, if you have children, I don't care what age their children are. Maybe maybe you have teens, but especially if you have little kids, you need to read with your kids. Right. And in fact, as a as a teacher. Uh, I can tell you that I automatically know in my classroom 
whose which kids their parents spend a lot of time reading to them. Yeah, it's just obvious, right? right? That is the number one thing that you can do to help your child succeed in school mm-hmm. is to read to them from the time they're little all the way through. But I want to say, even if that hasn't been your habit, no time like the present right. to take up the habit of reading together as a family. Absolutely, there's so many joys involved with that beyond just the practical things it gives them. It's just a it's a special time. So. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I know that my, my parents, my mom specifically, read to me from the time I was, uh, you know, pre-reader, uh, very, very small, uh, all the way up into my adolescence, especially because I had younger siblings, and uh, so she'd be reading to them. Uh, my wife has done that. I've done that, where we've read through many books as a family and all the way up into the teen years uh, and uh, continue to enjoy reading together, uh, reading around the lunch table, reading around the dinner table, um, uh, and, and, and it really does, it makes it, it, it makes a book come alive in a completely different way. And, uh, and it's a great way to encounter, uh, great literature. And so, yeah, at, as a, at an elementary level, this reading readiness, right? It's, it's helping the youngest children learn how to read, getting them ready to read. It's sometimes helping your teenagers who may not be as naturally disposed to reading, although I think yours are and, and mine are, but, but a lot of teenagers, they're in a, period of life where they're not really interested in reading, but it's exposing them to that kind of literature and helping lay a foundation for a life of reading that they may adopt later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things that I think about that third chapter of the book is approaching the study of foreign languages. This is also kind of this this pedagogical approach is also very useful in thinking about how to read in other languages. That's not our topic today, but I'll just mention that for those who are interested in uh, uh, studying other languages. There are a number of insights in how to read a book that can also easily translate into the study of other languages and reading literature uh, in other languages as well. What about inspectional reading? So the next chapter, he goes into uh, an inspectional approach, and this is where we begin actually taking a physical book and kind of breaking it down, preparing to slice it open and start reading it. How, do, how does he recommend that we go through that, Jacob? Yeah, so he suggests things like, you know, looking at the title page and preface, maybe kind of reading the blurb on the back of the dust jacket to see what, uh, what other people are saying about it. Uh, you know, kind of thumb through the book and see its parts and its structure, just to get kind of a, a, a bird's eye view of how it's laid out, things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this is this is really just kind of getting to know the bones of the book is maybe a way of thinking about that. Yeah. What are its parts and pieces? I think a lot of people feel like when they pick up a book, they, you know, how do I even know if this is something that I want to read? Mm-hmm. How do I even know what this is about? Uh, you need to you need to kind of analyze it just a little bit. X-ray the book, right? Uh, yeah, look at look at the cover. Look at inside the cover. Look at the table of contents. Maybe flip open the chapters. Look at the chapter headings. Read the first paragraph of each chapter. Get a sense of what what the book is about, how it's put together, uh, because the reality is that there are books that are not worth reading, uh, or there are books that should only be read once and you've gotten all the information out of it. Uh, there are other books that you want to just read in parts, especially a lot of academic reading. Uh, we're interacting with books that uh, maybe we're not reading it cover to cover, but we're reading a few chapters from within the book. We wouldn't even know what chapters to read if we weren't using the table of contents and the index and some of these other resources to kind of inspect the book first and find out what is there. So I do have to ask what your thoughts. So, I mean, there are points where I, I you know, as I go over this book i don't always agree with all those recommendations sure. so i'm just curious you know for instance he says uh you know on the superficial reading level right um read through without ever stopping to look up or ponder the things you don't understand right away 
What do you think about that? Like sh- yep. on your on your initial reading of a great book, should you just push through without as much reflection? That's definitely not how my in my nature of how to read a book. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and I don't know. Maybe maybe that's because I'm a I'm a more mature reader at this point that I don't do that. Maybe this is good advice for for younger readers or newer readers. Um, but even then, I'm just not sure what I think about that device. I mean, I don't know what the problem would be to stopping and ponder, even if you don't come to the right conclusion or any conclusion. Yeah. It, that reflection seems valuable to me. Yeah. No, I, I get I get where you're coming from, but I do actually agree with this advice. Maybe I'm taking it a slightly different way than you are, though. I don't think that he's discouraging pondering what you're reading. The way that I understand that section of the book is don't stop to try and study. Don't stop to look up. Don't okay. stop to cross-reference. And, and I, I have, this is something I've become very convicted about, actually, in about the last 15 years. I would see members of my church who couldn't do Bible reading because every time they ran into something that was interesting or confusing, <laughs> rabbit trail. exactly, they start doing Bible study and they're running cross-references and they're pulling out a concordance and they're pulling out a Bible dictionary and they're not reading the scriptures anymore. They're studying the Bible and that's still useful, right. but they never get through the biblical text. And in a similar way, reading great books, if every time I hit a difficult section, I stop and I say, I have to understand this before I can go any further, well, I'm never going to get through it. Uh, So I think what he's saying is that you just push forward. If you hit something that's difficult to understand, if you hit something that is a little bit obscure, just keep reading. Because as you continue to read, uh, either the argument is going to be clearer because you continue to move through the context, or it's going to be something that at the end you can go back and on a subsequent reading or as you are studying at a deeper level, you can then begin to explore that. But you need to see the big picture first. It's, it's the idea of don't worry about what kind of tree this or that is. First, explore the forest, right? Get all the way through the forest, see the big picture, and then come back and study the details. What about your any thoughts on? Uh, he talks about you know different speeds of reading. Yeah. Um, what What are your What are your thoughts on that? You know, I've I've studied speed reading uh, a number of times over the years. I know how to do it. I've practiced it at different points in my life. I have uh, over the last you know ten years abandoned it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really don't find it useful at all. Uh, I think that probably just because I've read a lot in my life, I read naturally a little bit faster than other people. Although I know a lot of people who read a lot faster than I do and who retain it so much better than I do. So I think that is reading speed is very, very subjective. Some of the people that I've known that I think read the best and have gained the most from their reading actually read very, very slow. And I've just come to the point where uh, reading speed is just not important to me. Uh, I think reading well is far more important. There are going to be some things that I'm going to read faster uh, because it's not as dense. It's not as important. Maybe I am reading more for the pleasure of the story uh, rather than for uh, you know squeezing out every last drop of significance and, and uh, imagery. Um, other things I'm going to read very, very slowly. Uh, I'm going to reread repeatedly. That's another part of you know uh, being committed to a plan of rereading uh, every year. I don't feel that it's as important for me uh, to you know to to read fast or to read super super slow, but just read at a comfortable pace because I know I'm coming back to this regularly. So I don't know what you found in that, but I found that you know yes, you can speed up your reading without losing all of your comprehension, uh, but there there is a trade-off where I I end up focusing more on trying to read quickly 
And um, I, I don't want to do that. I want to just pay attention to the literature itself. Yeah. I think, uh, and this is, of course, a little bit different example than maybe some of the speed reading techniques, but I, I remember uh, Kindle on the mm -hmm. app, right, came out. I don't know if they still even have it as a feature. They may. But there's a speed reading feature yeah. on it, and it would act, literally, it would go word by word, real big in the center of the screen, and you could you could turn the the speed up, and so it's just flashing the each next word right in your face, right? And uh, I, I tried that out a little bit just because I was curious, you know, and I found, well, sure, I can read it, but I can't put together what I'm reading, you know, and, and so I, and again, I'm sure everybody's a little different on this. There are probably some people who, who do speed read to great effect, but I, I definitely find for me, and I've observed in a lot of students uh, over the years that uh, many people who just try to read quickly through a text are not retaining, they're not, not even really understanding. Um, you'll, you'll have just read a whole page and say, now what? Give me one point from that page. Oh, I got nothing, you know right. what I mean? Right. <laughs> so I definitely, uh, between the two, I'd say, uh, just slow down, yeah. you know, like be, be a little more, uh, reflective and analytical as you're reading, yeah. even okay to, I'm going to reread that paragraph again, Absolutely. you know, uh, Absolutely. because I realized I just didn't have it. You know, I didn't, didn't really make connection. One thing that I have used uh, effectively with both adults and, and teenagers, uh, and we may have mentioned this on an earlier episode, but, um, uh, when you're reading a book that may be a little bit difficult to read and you find yourself getting distracted, getting an audio copy of that book mm -hmm. and a physical text yeah. and listening and reading at the same time, I, I have found uh, is a very useful way of kind of maintaining your pace. Not reading it fast, but you can speed up the playback um, so that it's actually still slower than you would silently read but it's carrying you forward and it's keeping you on the page where if you're silently reading, you may be getting distracted, your mind may be wandering, you may be uh, you know, looking around. Um, and so that's one tool of reading, not fast, but more quickly, more efficiently, while improving your comprehension because you're both reading it with your eyes and with your ears. Mm. Uh, the other thing that I do myself and that I encourage other people to do is read out loud. Yeah. Uh, it's just one of the best ways of improving your comprehension, and you will hear and encounter that text in a very different way if you are not only reading it but speaking it. And um, this is this is especially true with some ancient medieval texts oh, because sure. there was there was an absolute assumption yeah. that people would be reading this. Yeah, aloud. they're they're meant to be heard. Right, yeah, there, there's there's tonal things going on, especially in the original languages sure. of those. Right. Yeah. Uh, I I always. I chuckle when I'm reading Confessions, uh, and Augustine talks about St. Ambrose, and he, yeah. he comes into the church, and Ambrose is kind of over in the corner, and he's reading silently. And Augustine just thinks that's the strangest thing he's right. ever seen, right. that somebody's reading without reading out loud, right? Yeah. And that just tells you that that was not the norm. Yeah. Um, so that's actually a more modern way of reading. Right, right. And, and, it, and it's really good to, to read out loud is helpful in a lot of ways. I think it helps with your speaking. I, help, I think it helps with your enunciation. It, uh, it just has a lot of kind of language benefits, but definitely in terms of uh, keeping you focused, helping you comprehend as you move ahead, reading aloud is one of the best things that you can do. Um, so maybe a, a summary of this little section yeah. we're talking about is just you should read however it really best connects with you. Right. I mean, you know, so it, it shouldn't be about just pounding out as many books as you can in a year. Right. Um, and again, you, also you don't necessarily want to stop and, and go look up everything you don't understand, right? But, but find that pace where you're actually able to, you're able to move forward, you're able to make progress, and 
at least be able to kind of regurgitate what you just read on right. at least a basic level. That's right. And and some of those things that you don't understand, uh, this is where we're going to get into the next section of analytical reading, where an annotation of some kind can help bring you back uh, to that particular section so that when you finish your reading, you can go back and find those notations and look up what you need to look up uh, or, or you know, run whatever cross-reference uh, you, you need to do. Um, when we get into analytical reading, he talks about four stages of analytical reading. Uh, what is the book about as a whole? This deals with subject or the classification of the text. What is being said in detail and how? This regards really the terms that are being used and how we are to interpret them. Third, is the book true in whole or in part? This is really the discernment piece that we mentioned before. I'm evaluating uh, the, you know, whether this is truth or whether it is uh, not and, and to what extent that that is the case. And then fourth, what of it? What's the significance? What am I supposed to do with this? A lot of things are true. I mean, I could read, you know, how to program my DVD player, and yeah, well, it's true. That's how it works, but so what? Well, I guess I'm supposed to program my DVD player, right? But it's not going to make much impact on my life. And so these are kind of the four steps in analytical reading or four important stages of analytical reading as I'm trying to now move through the text, understand the text, uh, evaluate the text, and then apply uh, the text. For any younger listeners, we have a DVD player. Sorry. It's this thing that you put little round discs into to watch movies. You know, at least I said DVD player and not VHS player. That's pretty good. Yeah, thank you. I was, <laughs> I was actually reminding myself that I needed to say DVD player, and you're pointing out that even that is still antiquated. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not streaming, man. I still have a DVD player. <laughs> you know they don't sell them in stores anymore, though, right? No, I didn't know that. No, you can't Are find you it. kidding? You might might be able to find a Blu-ray player if you're lucky, but they definitely don't sell DVD players anymore. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, <laughs> all right. Okay. So, um... Something that we're going to talk about today is uh, some of the some of the uh, annotation uh, methods, techniques, systems that you have created. We're going to get to that in just a minute when we kind of finish going through the book. But this is the place where Adler and Van Doren kind of introduce that in their own text, making a book your own. And I know this is something you feel very strongly about. We've at times disagreed on this. I I, I don't disagree actually, uh, but but the importance of making that copy of a work, your own, and personalizing it in various ways. So tell us a little bit about what, what he's got in mind here. Well, I think one thing that Adler advocates is writing in your book. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is sacrilegious to some people, right. uh, the idea of marking your book, especially Christians with their Bibles. You have run into plenty of Christians like, oh, I, I couldn't. I couldn't mark in my Bible, you know, and, uh, but, but Adler would say you should mark up everything you read, yeah. but, but with a point, with a purpose towards an end and a goal. Right. Um, and so that's one thing that he, he says to do, you know, we, and you look for different kinds of information and, and, and there's a lot of ways to do this. I mean, just to be clear, there's, there's not like one system that's the right system to do this, but I think the bigger issue is that you actually adopt a, a consistent system right. to be able to see the different kinds of information in a text and to be able to categorize them and think about them. Um, and also, I, you should invite yourself into the conversation of the book by responding to the author like you're having a conversation. Yes. 
Yeah, a book is reading a book is uh, having a conversation with the author. And so, yeah, there are different levels of annotation where we're going to underline or highlight key passages. Sometimes that's so that we can come back and find those passages, sometimes so that we can draw them out. Uh, other times, it's, it's just a way of interacting with the text as we go through. There are some books that I've marked up that I know I'm not necessarily going to go back to those passages, but just the, the physical act of stopping and underlining that section that I just read, finding something striking in it, that helps to cement it in my brain. It might be putting something in the margins, whether it's a question mark, whether it's an exclamation point, whether it's writing something in response to the author or, uh, or cross-referencing another section of the book. And different people have different systems. There's not one system that's right or best for everyone. But it is to say, have some kind of a system. Now, there are obviously exceptions to this. I've loaned people books, and when <laughs> they gave them back to me, they had annotated yeah, them. Yeah, that's not nice. Please don't annotate my books if you borrow my book, right? buy your own copy or just keep it and buy me a new one. You also shouldn't annotate the hymnals at church. That would also be something that would discourage. Especially when they were editing the Nicene Creed. That wasn't so good. Oh, that's not, yeah, that's not appropriate, folks. You don't get to edit ecumenical creeds. Um, Don't mark library books, please. I mean, that's not cool. Uh, But but yeah, if you've got a book that you own, uh, mark it up. Mark it up. And and again, sometimes you're going to have a collector's edition that maybe you say, that's not the one that I want to annotate. Uh, okay, but get get a copy of that book for the purpose of annotating it. And if that means getting a trade paperback. Yeah, Dover you know? Thrift editions, you know, things like that are great for this. Um, but but I, you know, I find the more I mark a book, the more I remember the book, the more I understand it, um, the more I can, I can pick it up a year later and flip through and be instantly reminded of what's in that book, the thoughts I had the last time I read that book, mm-hmm. see how my thoughts have changed. Sometimes I find I, you know, three or four years later, I disagree with my own annotations right. because I've grown and changed right. in my thinking. Um, but, you know, I, with my students, I encourage them, look, you can write, ha, in yeah. the margin, right? Yeah. You know, that was, it struck you funny. Or you can write, well, that was stupid. In the margin. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when yeah. you're reading a, a story. Right. and right. But the the point is, is that you're just engaging. And the more you engage, the more you remember, the more you, you understand. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. So, he talks about three kinds of annotations and this will this will kind of lead us into in, in a few minutes uh, your system of annotating but he talks about uh, structural annotations conceptual annotations and dialectical annotations I think this is a useful way of thinking about what am I marking why am I marking it how am I marking it how am I capturing that because there may be annotations in the book that are then captured into a journal into a notebook into uh, you know it, it could be evernote or you know Google Docs or something like that um, what what am I trying to do with the annotations that I'm making if I underline everything on the page I might as well not have underlined anything on the page I once sat next to a woman on a plane who had in her hand she had, left hand she had a book her right hand she had a highlighter and she literally highlighted everything as she was reading. <laughs> I guess that was her system. I don't yeah. know. But it's like, I've done the book. <laughs> Everything's highlighted. At the risk of sounding judgmental, <laughs> that's not a good system. right? I mean, like, why, why are you highlighting But anything? at least she was reading. That's right. At yeah, least she was that's reading. Good. That's so. good. So a structural annotation is really looking at the content of the book. 
who are the characters? Where is the thesis? You know, what are the major turning points in the argument? Again, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, structure is just understanding the way that it's put together, the framework. Uh, conceptual annotations are going to pertain to the truth and to the significance of the content of the book. Uh, things that stand out, whether it is virtues, whether it is vices, whether it is uh, a, a point that the author is trying to impress upon his readers, right? Uh, uh, these are going to be conceptual ideas that should stand out as we're going through each page. And then dialectical annotations are going to be the shape of the argument in relation to other people's ideas. How does this interact with, whether it's syntopically interacting with other uh, authors, other works across the Western canon, uh, whether it is participating in an argument that this author has made earlier in the same work or in other similar works. Uh, dialectical uh, where uh, uh, annotations are where we're bringing different pieces into dialogue with one another. How is what is said in chapter 1 relating to what's in chapter 10? How is what's being said in this book relating to another book by the same author or another? Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, so structural again. This is this is the the who, what, where, when, why kind of questions that are directly answered in the text. You know, uh, just being able to say again, I understand how this book is laid out. I understand when uh, when an idea or a person or character, depending on the kind of text you're reading, enters the book, um, and you just you just know you know the basic framework. So if again you and you think about all kinds of books that maybe are hard in some of their ideas and you say, oh, I don't know if I really understood that book. But on this level, you should be able to understand the book. Right. You should be able to say, well, I mean, this is what it's about, right? This is this is the ideas that were presented. This is the people that were in it. This is, you know, when it took place or things like that, you know. On, on that level, if you're just reading carefully, really anybody should be able to give this kind of an overview of the book. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that next level is that, that conceptual uh, is the idea of, of how does how does something that gets said maybe in this part of the book relate back to something you said earlier in the book? Mm -hmm. Are these ideas consistent? You know, you might think of th about things like that. Um, again, is it true? Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, again, I think it's important that we read charitably. We talked a little bit about that before. Um, if you're able to read an author and give them the benefit of the doubt, if I can take them in a certain way, uh, charitably that, that says, okay, I, I can see what they're saying. I think I see, understand what they're trying to get at. And that, that might be right. That might be true. Um, but at some point you sometimes have to say, nope, right. that's just not true. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and we have to be able to bring, um, bring truth to bear against it. So. I think that's right. Un until you know what an author is saying and why he's saying it, I don't think it's fair to evaluate it as true or untrue. Right. But once you do understand what's being said and why it's being said, I think it's not only appropriate, but it's actually necessary yeah. for us to make a moral judgment about that. Now, we could say, I need more information before I'm prepared to do that. I understand what's being said here, but I need to understand more fully why it's being said. That's fair. Uh, but I think you actually have a moral obligation to judge what it is that's being said. Judge what you're reading and to say, is this good or is this bad? I mean, the idea is in Mein Kampf, right? I want to I be a charitable reader. I want to be an honest reader. But once I understand what's being said, I mean, is this good or is this bad? If I'm reading, uh, you know, Marx, I, I, I need to recognize these ideas have moral implications. And I can't simply read in a dispassionate way. I can't read in a morally neutral way. At some point, once I understand, I have to engage in that level of discernment and judgment 
and, and, and do so in a fair way, but it's absolutely necessary that I do so. Yeah, but, but understanding does indeed precede that kind of critique, and I think that's super important. Uh, a quote comes to mind, although I'm going to butcher it, but from Ender's Game. Yeah. Uh, something to the, You'll probably be able to correct me on this, right? But something to the effect of, you know, in order for me to defeat my enemy, I f must first know him, and when I know right. him, I love him, yes, right? Yes, correct. Which, which, you know, that's not to say, okay, I love Hitler, right? You know, but, but at the same time, if, if I understand Hitler, yeah. I understand what motivated him to say the things he did, I really understand. I might even at some level be able to have a bit of sympathy with where he's coming from on some things, yeah. right? Yeah. While then fundamentally rejecting his conclusions and what he does with it. It's the same thing with Karl Marx, right? Yeah. Karl Marx was responding to a a nasty time yeah. when greedy capitalists were, were making children slaves in factories. Yeah. There should be some moral outrage over that, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. But what he came up with in response wasn't the right answer, you know? Enslave entire nations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so, but, but again, having the ability to sympathize or even empathize to a certain degree uh, is, is necessary to fully understand where someone's coming from and at that point, when you really understand, you can agree or disagree. Yeah, and I think it's not even uh, always sympathizing with their point of view, but sympathizing with the tragedy yeah, that, of yeah. uh, of their humanity being corrupted. Right. Uh, you know, so you you look at uh, what what had happened with Germany after World War Two, uh, World War One, rather. Uh, you can understand kind of the political and social environment that gave rise to Hitler and to the Third Reich, and why there was such popular acclaim uh, when a man, you know said, we're going to rebuild the fatherland, we're going to regain our strength, that resonates. You can understand that appeal while at the same time lamenting the tragedy of, you know, the perversion of humanity, the corruption of humanity, that uh, that people like Hitler and the SS and various other leaders in the Third Reich, uh, you know, could could behave in just barbaric, inhuman ways uh, toward other people who were image bearers. And, and you can see the tragedy of a humanity degraded to the form of bestiality, yeah. right? Uh, but that's right. Un until you until you go through that process of trying to understand, you can't effectively morally critique and judge. Uh, and and that's, that's probably the step that's jumped too quickly. Uh, we move past too quickly in order to, to judge things as good or bad. Um, I want us to get to, to, to your techniques, and so I don't want to deal with much of the rest of the book, but just to mention that as Adler is going through this stage of uh, analytical reading, he gives 11 rules uh, for readers, and I want to just kind of click through these super quickly yeah. and, uh, and, and won't have much else to say uh, about each of them, but first of all, he says you should classify the book understand what kind of a book it is that you're reading. Secondly, you should be able to restate the point of the book in your own words. This is really useful to maybe at the end of a chapter, or at the end of a book, some people I know will write in their books or they might have a notebook that they're using as they're reading. They'll actually paraphrase the main point of that chapter or of that book as a whole, maybe write some kind of a little review. Maybe they give it, uh, you know, however many stars. They've, they've judged that this is a four-star work, but they need to know what is it about, and they can go back to that kind of synopsis later and, and remind themselves. 
Third, outline the book. Uh, how is it put together? Sometimes books are, are very easily structured. How to read a book, this book, is actually a good example of that. You can look at the table of contents and know you've already got an outline. Right. But a lot of great literature is not that way. So create an outline of some kind. Fourth, determine what the author's goal is. Try to understand what is he driving at? What is he moving us toward? Fifth, interpret key words. This is something that we're going to definitely capture in our annotations. We're going to say here are key terms that are being used in the argument, and I need to be able to understand what do they mean in their original context. Sixth, grasp the main propositions. This is where you're going to be looking at specific claims, specific arguments. There's a thesis for the book as a whole. There are kind of sub-theses uh, within the book that are going to also kind of advance particular uh, uh, arguments or assertions. We want to find what those are and identify them. Eighth, determine the author's success or failure. What is he trying to propose and is it a workable solution? And then as we move into the area of critiquing, rule nine, complete your reading first. You have to read all of it. You have to be able to say, yes, I've gone through this. I understand where he's coming from. I know what he is saying. Before I try to sit in judgment of him, I've read him charitably and carefully. Uh, rule 10, control yourself. Uh, what, what he means by this is if you're going to disagree, do so in a reasonable way. Don't do so in a reactive way. Don't do so in, in, in kind of an out-of-control fashion. Uh, when you disagree, do so reasonably, logically, in an informed fashion uh, so that you are critiquing in a responsible manner. And then 11, present good reasons. Don't just say, I don't agree. I don't like it give good reasons for why this or that claim is not true or this or that proposed solution is not workable and and give your arguments in in rebuttal yeah basically just avoid entering into a bunch of fallacies right yeah, that's uh, exactly what it is attacks that's exactly like that. what it is uh, how often we see this today people uh, I mean, books that I certainly don't like, you know, uh, White Fragility or something along yep. those lines, yep. you know. And it's like, well, I mean, a lot of people jump straight to attacking the character of the author or something like that. Well, actually, you know, let's just see what they have to say. Right. And let's see whether the ideas themselves are good or bad. And if the ideas are bad, let's make a reasoned argument against them. Um, and so, yeah, we, people get hot under the collar and they just go towards just railing, basically. Yes. But if we're to be better than our opponents, right... Uh, we at least want to meet them on equal ground, if not go beyond what they did in their book, right, right. To, to answer them in a, a reasoned way. Yeah, it's important to remember that when we disagree with something, uh, there's a tendency to want to say everything about that work or about that person is bad. And, uh, and, and that's, that's never true. That's almost never true. You know, is we're, we're interpreting everything that we hear or read through the lens of our displeasure, our disagreement, uh, when in fact there may be a number of things. I, I was in conversation with uh, uh, you know, some of my classmates in the, this PhD program this week about uh, something written by Hegel. Uh, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of Hegel, right? <laughs> there would be a lot that I would critique there. Uh, and yet we were still able to find things that he was saying that we would say, yes, from, from a certain standpoint, this, this observation that he's making is true, or this argument that he's advancing can be useful in certain ways, the overarching point that he may be making may, may be very bad, and yet trying to look sympathetically and with understanding and respond in a reasonable fashion, make concessions where we can, give uh, commendation where we can, while at the same time giving the critique and the correction uh, that, is, that is necessary.
Uh, the remainder of the book talks about syntopical reading, uh, which I don't think we're even going to really get into today very much. Syntopical reading is just where we're reading multiple books, multiple works in conversation with one another. We're reading across the canon. We're reading from uh, from Homer to Heisinger. You know, we're reading from uh, you know the, the the early Greek poets and philosophers all the way up into the 20th and now the 21st century. I think what we might say about that, at least in brief here, is if you, if you're going to do that, and you should do that. The way that you begin to approach that is by understanding the great ideas. Yeah. Uh, so you, in order to meaningfully say, well, what does Homer have to do with Hegel? Yeah. <laughs> you know, is uh, to understand, well, what are, the, what are the common ideas that are being discussed? Yeah. Um, are they talking about, you know, good versus evil? Are they uh, talking about concepts like uh, home? Mm -hmm. Are they talking about concepts? I mean, there's just so many different things. Yeah. But, but the point is, is... What are the, uh, and this is why actually in the great books set, the, the 60 volume, or if you've got the older one, the 54 volume, right. great books of the Western world, the first two volumes in the newer set and the second and third volumes of the old set uh, is the, the Syntopicon. And what it does is it just lists, you know, from war to happiness to, you know, all these different kind of great ideas and topics and where they appear and are discussed throughout this entire Western canon. Um, and so that's that's where you want to start, I think, doing some topical reading is to isolate ideas in a text and then ask what of the other great minds in this great conversation, how have they weighed in on this topic? Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's, it's difficult to just take a whole book and say, how does this whole book relate to this other whole book? They may seem very different at first. Right. I mean, anytime you're reading an ancient Greek text, if you're reading Aeschylus or Sophocles, that doesn't seem like it has much to do with Jane Austen, you know, and yet yeah. it does. It does, yeah. So No, it's a great point, and I think that the difficulty with syntopical reading, and maybe this is why we should do an entire episode just on this, is that uh, you, you are needing to read thematically, and yet I feel like to some extent to be able to read thematically, you have to first read kind of comprehensively. And what I mean by that is a lot of approaches to syntopical reading is just reading sections. It's just reading excerpts. It's just reading kind of proof texts, which are frequently pretexts for error, right? You're reading this portion of Homer, this portion of Aristotle, this portion of, you know, Hegel, and, and you're trying to reconcile these in some ways, whereas you can't really understand that excerpt until you've read the context. Yeah, this is, this is just like um, what people do with Shakespeare all the time, yeah. right? You yeah. know, people, how, many, how, many, <laughs> how many nurseries have over the baby's crib to sleep, perchance to dream? Which is a text about suicide. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Certain a, a little bit wider understanding of the context, right, okay. is really important. Uh, and that is what's difficult about syntopical reading is that you're never done with syntopical reading because you are you are inevitably, I mean, nobody has read everything. Everyone has gaps in their reading. We're constantly trying to fill in gaps, but we're going to do that throughout our lifetime. And so as you're reading more of the Western tradition, you're able to read more effectively syntopically because now you're able to connect ideas together and you're, again, looking at these particular themes. What is virtue? What is knowledge? What is courage, right? You know, what is 
evil? Where does evil come from? How do we even define evil, right? Uh, and, and many people have spoken to these issues, to these questions, uh, and yet as we're reading more and more of them in context, we're better able to read them in conversation. So, you know, at, at, the, at a kind of an early stage of syntopical reading, I think it can be very, very frustrating because you're trying to interact with authors that you don't really know, you don't really understand, and you may be taking things out of context and, and really drawing conclusions that would be, you know, uh, uh, the, the original author would be averse to the, to the way that you're reading it. Um, and, and so you've got to try and fit it into the context. But at the same time, you can't read everything. And then only once you've read everything, come to some conclusions because nobody's read everything. Yeah, this is why if, you're, if you are reading uh, Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, you know, part of his uh, disputations that he does for each question he always cites an authority mm -hmm. uh, in, in that's, that sides with him on the issue he's taking. Yeah. Um, and sometimes people read those and like, well, what does that have to do with what he's even talking about? But, but Aquinas is assuming you know the larger context of where that quote came from. Right. And that's, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, so. exactly, which is assuming too much for <laughs> many, uh, many readers. Um, so, Jacob, on your Substack, uh, you have been putting out study guides for the great books, great literature. This is, a, a as I understand it, a multi-year project oh, for yeah. your students, um, as you're taking them through, you know, these, these, this kind of literature. But you've also been posting some articles and guides that are intended just to help more generally with reading. And I wanted to, I wanted to touch on some of this because we have different systems of reading a book. We have different systems of annotation. We use some of the same ideas. Uh, we, we have a lot of the same, like conceptually the same approach in terms of annotation and commonplace books and capturing things. Um, but the way that you have developed this over the last several years, uh, you've gotten much better organized than I have ever been. And I think you have a much more effective system than I personally have. I've, I've expressed my appreciation to you a number of times about this and said this is really valuable. This is something I need to incorporate more in a more disciplined way. I, I feel torn because the the system that I use works. Right? <laughs> I've, I've used it for so long that it, it works. And so I almost don't, don't want to change what isn't broken. And yet I do see the value in having a little bit more structured, a little bit more disciplined approach. Uh, and, and I think that's what you've really been able to put together. So We'll link a couple of these articles in the in the episode, uh, but uh, but I wanted you to take us through some of these ideas uh, on marking books and how to journal through books and and just whatever you think is is helpful about that. Yeah, well, and I think you know part of what has forced me to put this all down right is that I'm a teacher. Yeah, and so I have I have tried to be introspective about what. What has helped me the most in my learning? What has helped me to understand the books that I'm reading? Um, and in that process, how do I help train a generation to be able to read for all they're worth, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the system I have, it's, it's not very complicated. It's actually pretty straightforward. Um, the, the number one thing, and, and by the way, I, I'll just say this. I am in love with erasable pens at this point. You, I, I, you, have, you have described this to me. You actually gave me one yeah. uh, that I haven't really started using at all yet, but it is pretty remarkable. So I remember, you know, when I was in elementary school, they had something they called erasable pens. That was not. That did not erase no, 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 at no. all. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> and they've come a long way in this technology, right? Uh, but no, they have these wonderful erasable pens now, and they really do erase, and they're kind of like magic to me. But, I but feel either like way. they're rediscovering the pencil. 
Yes. Right? Yeah. It's okay. pencil 2.0. Okay. Right? Okay. All Something right. like yeah. that. Or 3.0, because yeah. mechanical pencil is probably 2.0. Anyway. Probably. Uh, all right, so, but I, I use five five colors, and this is what I, I teach my students to do as well. Black is going to be my my general underlining points of interest in the text, uh, marginal notations, anything, just any note I want to write, whether, again, it's an exclamation, ha, that was funny, or, or oh, this reminds me of this other book I was reading, the same idea takes place there. Uh, you know, I was I was reading uh, something in Sophocles just the other day, and it reminded me of what I had just read in Cyrus. You know, uh, it's about you know sons giving uh, or a father giving wisdom to his son. And anyway, you know, so I just noted that in the margin. And again, black is just my general underliner, my general notation. Uh, I use red for vocabulary. I underline uh, key terminology. Sometimes words I just I don't know that word, and so it stood out to me that I'm, I may need to look that up. And, and again, I don't often look it up on the spot. I, I try to let context give me some idea, um, but I, I note it if I don't know what it means. Or as a teacher, I'll, oftentimes I actually underline words that I'm pretty sure a seventh grader won't know, or you know things like that, so that I can draw it out and talk to them about it. Uh, I also use red for uh, references to other literary works. So if the name of a book or an article is mentioned, I underline that in red, uh, or foreign language. Mm. So that's those are typically how I use that. Uh, blue I use for characters or historical persons, um, and then green for dates or events that stand out, and purple for places, which could be cities, states, countries. It could be businesses that are mentioned. It could be a school that's mentioned, uh, but any kind of location that is singled out. You know that's gonna what I use purple for. And one of the things that uh, that's helpful in this is. is I, I tell people you need to only mark it the first time it appears. So you're not, so for instance, you're not, uh, if, if you're reading Charles Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol, you're not underlining in blue every single, every single time it says Scrooge, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but you'd mark it the first time. Uh, and then whenever a new character appears, you'd mark that name for the first time. And it's the same with all these different categories. Um, and that allows you, when you're done with a book, you can flip back to the book and see where a character or a historical person has entered the first time, right? Yeah. Uh, it also um, allows you to, um, well, so I'll get to this in a minute, but I, there, there's a second layer that I'm going to talk about in just a second and why that's helpful. So I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but, you know, you want to, you really do want to get to this point where you are uh, marking up a book and making it your own and having a system that allows you to quickly identify the kinds of information that's there. And so this multicolored system I find really helpful. You can open up any page in the book that you've just annotated and know what kind of information is before you. Okay. So that's really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Do, have you found that, I, I think my fear always with, with like a multicolored approach was that it's just too too complex, right? Uh, that I'm juggling multiple pens and, 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 you know, a book. And for me, I always do my annotations in red. And so I, you know, I, I've got, a, I've got a red pen. It's just a cheap big pen, you know, and, uh, but if I'm on the plane or if I'm, you know, uh, you know, where, wherever I am sitting in a coffee shop, just my book and my pen, and I've got everything that I need, but you've made this system work now. And not only for yourself, but for a lot of students, how, how has that, how has that transition been? And, and, uh, was it, was it was it a bit of an adaptation to say I need to make sure that I've got these five different colors with me? Yeah, it's a, it's just a habit at this point, um, and I I feel I almost won't read a book if I don't have my pens handy, like mm. it, it, because I'm like I'm not really reading it if yeah. I'm not marking it in this way. And admittedly, it can be laborsome sometimes, especially uh, historical texts or even even the biblical text. Uh, 
were just oh we just drop 30 names and the places they belong to and so that really slows you down oh uh this person from that place switch pins switch pins you know and, and so it does but at the same time um i kind of like that it slows you down hmm. Um, in fact, I will say this, having a, a bachelor's degree in biblical studies and apologetics and a master's degree in biblical studies, this system applied to scripture has let me see so much more than any of the hermeneutics classes I ever took. Wow. I, 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 I really, really just appreciating reading the Bible with this system because it, I've, I've seen things that I've read right past 10,000 times. Yeah. And it's because it forces me to slow down. It forces me to to take note of every person that shows up, every place that's mentioned, right? Um, and again, yeah, there might be, there is, there is a place for, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read through this text for enjoyment. I'm not going to worry about this kind of analytical level of, of marking up the book. I'm not, I'm not against that. I don't do this when I read Harry Potter, right? I mean, I, I just don't, I mean, you could, and I think there'd probably be some benefit in doing that, but I don't, I, it's okay to read for pleasure. Uh, but, but truly, um, I've gained so much from doing it this way. And again, I remember it so much better. I can find things so much more quickly. And moving beyond uh, just kind of marking out this information, which I, so it's, it's similar to Adler's approach, uh, but I talk about the grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Right. Um, so the, this is the trivium, for those who may not be familiar. The trivium is, is the first three of the seven liberal arts. Um, and, you know, they are their own proper subjects, their own disciplines in one sense. But they're also a way of thinking about information in general. So grammar is, what does the text say? What is there? Who, where, when, how? Just regurgitate the story. And, and this method of marking up a book allows you to do that on, an, I think, a pretty expert level if you take it seriously. Mm. Um, but then beyond that, we, we say, okay, once I have that basic understanding of what the text says, it allows me to go from that base of basic understanding to asking deeper questions. Mm. So this is just like we said earlier in the podcast, understanding comes before kind of this analytical. Um, but I, I encourage students to um, ask logic questions and rhetoric questions. And logic questions are why? Why did the author say that thing? Why did this character do that thing? What is what just got said in this chapter have to do with what was said in a previous chapter? Uh, are, you know what argument is being made here? Can I actually turn the argument in this book into a syllogism? Can I make it into an, an inductive argument? Mm. Uh, we were just reading uh, Oedipus the King, and uh, Oedipus is accusing uh, Creon, his brother-in-law, of trying to us usurp his throne, and and Creon gives basically a, a, an argument for why he wouldn't do that, right? And you could easily turn that into uh, a more formal logical argument. So. When you pay attention to these things, and, and I ask my students to try to draw these things out and try to get them to, uh, to ask questions like that. So just, you know, for example, uh, what, what does Aristotle mean by happiness? Uh, why, is it, uh, why is Jill Pohl so afraid of Aslan, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just, just questions like that that allows uh, students to kind of interact with the ideas in the book um, and, and have a discussion around them. And then that third level is, is rhetoric questions. Uh, which is basically analyzing ideas in the book. So you say, okay, uh, light versus darkness is a theme or an idea in this book. How do we see it throughout the book? Uh, maybe where else do we in literature see other people interact with that theme? So it gets to that kind of syntopical right. level. Right. Okay, that's helpful. So uh, 
what I love about this is, like you said, the ability to kind of diagram the content of a book without having to create a separate diagram, right? I mean, as you're just flipping back through, you're able to identify every character, uh, when they first appear, uh, every major place, every major event, uh, any appropriate cross-references. You've got a diagram, but you've got it in the text of the book. And if you want to create uh, an extra, you know, a notebook uh, or an outline or something like that in another document, create another resource for yourself, that's easy to do because you've marked the book in this way. Um, and I, I suppose we probably should say that, uh, you know, Different people are going to adapt these ideas in their own way. Of maybe course. it's maybe it's not five colors. Maybe it's three. Maybe it's seven. Uh, maybe it's you're not marking exactly the same things. But this but this gives you an idea of how to start marking, what kinds of ideas to capture within a book, uh, and 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 how to begin to develop a system of your own. One of the things that you've heard me say a lot of times in teaching systems like for organizing Bible knowledge is try to understand the system try to use the system, learn the system before you start monkeying with the system, right? Yeah. And so there probably is some value in saying, look, there's a there's a method to the madness. Jacob spent a lot of time developing this over multiple years. Uh, maybe try this out, read a few books this way, and then depending on how your experience goes after two or three books, start making the adaptations perhaps that uh, that will make it more useful for you. Yeah, it's like reading Mark Twain. It says, well, Mark Twain is a lot of poor grammar in his books it's not because mark twain doesn't know good grammar right right in fact he's right. allowed to break the grammar rules because he knows them first yes exactly yeah, so exactly uh yeah and, and again i think you mentioned this but uh i do also have on my Substack um a article about text journaling which is really just yeah. kind of the next step the next layer uh, uh that you can take this study right and it, right. it really is saying okay i've annotated a book or i've annotated this section of reading now i want to go a little bit further and I want to go back over that section of reading, and I'm going to transfer this into kind of a, a journal. And I have actually on my Substack printable pages. If you want to borrow the ones that I have on there, that's more than fine. Or do your own in a notebook, that's fine. Um, but it allows you to say, okay, now I've, maybe I've marked, uh, especially and especially in the case when you're reading history books or, or biblical texts, you know, you get a, a genealogy in there or something like that. Okay, I marked 40 names in this last reading, uh, but which of them do I have enough information about to be able to say something meaningful, right? And so you can you can then go back and grab those characters. You can write down in your in your notebook or on, on your text journal and say, okay, here's this character. He was uh, this person in the story. This is how he relates to, you know. So you just kind of give a little bit of a description of that character. And this helps you realize, too, that not every name that gets mentioned is going to be central to the story. It's not going to, uh, but at the same time, it sometimes <laughs> it sometimes shows you that people that you think didn't matter do. Yeah. Um, and that's and again, this is a, really the case in in the biblical story how people you've just passed right over and you go, oh wait a minute, I didn't realize that was the grandfather Correct. of you know, and and, and there is a more meaningful connection. There are multiple that you would have lost. questions that you cannot answer in the biblical narrative without the information that appears in the genealogies. Yeah. And we could give several examples of that of, you know, why did this happen or why was this okay or who was this person that unless you're paying attention to the genealogies, you will not be able to answer that question. Yeah. yeah. So in text journaling you just go you just go down the information that you just marked and you say, uh, here's a description of these central characters uh, here's a description of the the important places or geography or landmarks in the story, whatever however the, that falls out, you know, and say this is what we know about it. 
um, you know, dates, times, uh, events, just kind of give a short description. You can uh, maybe just write a one paragraph overall review of what you just read. How would I, how would I regurgitate this to somebody who asked me what I just read about? This is the place where you can write down your specific logic and rhetoric questions. And I had a third category. Um, well, grammar questions, again, are just what's in the book. So that's one. But logic, why, how do these things relate together? Rhetoric, I, analyzing the great ideas. Uh, but I also like to add theological questions. Hmm. Um, so as, as a Christian and reading all books as Christians, letting the scripture come to bear on the text. Uh, and it's, it's really... In some sense, these questions are really just uh, rhetoric questions, but they're they're laser focused rhetoric questions. So, what is the what is the great ideas? What are the big ideas in this text, and how does Scripture relate to them? So, we might draw in if we're reading a book about suffering, we're going to maybe pull something from Job, you know, mm -hmm. or, or and just to to let um, students think about God's Word and how it would relate to these ideas. Yeah, the first time I saw the material that you were putting together on text journaling, I uh, what it reminded me of was kind of the, the early book reports that, you know, I was taught to do in like in elementary school. Now, it's obviously a much more sophisticated version, right? But where it was just a way of capturing the key content, right? The key ideas, the key people, and then taking that content and, and showing that you do actually understand, right? And are able to translate that into something that's more than just a list of names, a list of dates, a list of places, right? It's uh, We start at that level, but we move beyond that level uh, as we're seeking understanding and then discernment with regard to those ideas. So it's, it's a great, it's a great tool. Um, and then you've also got some information on your Substack about commonplace journals. And this is something that you and I have both used over the years and uh, something that uh, it, earlier generations, uh, you know, kind of introduced us to. Uh, so tell us a little bit about a commonplace book. Yeah. So in one sense, it's hard to answer that question because a commonplace book can kind of be a lot of things. Yeah. But it really is a journal. Uh, you can get yourself a nice notebook. And, and if you're going to really take this seriously, I recommend get a nice one. Like get a nice, beautiful, leather-bound, you know, blank book, you know. Uh, but regardless, the idea is to have a place where you collect great ideas, great quotes. Uh, you can. Some people use it to have their own reflections on the things they've been reading. So kind of a, almost a, a journal diary type thing as well. Uh, but the way that I use it and the way that I, I teach my students to use it uh, is to look for specific things in the text they're reading. So uh, one thing that I do, so the great idea is, um, this is what a lot of people do, and I think this is a good way to do it. Uh, they say, okay, we have a list of great ideas, light versus darkness, uh, catastrophe, which if you're not familiar with that term, Tolkien actually coined it. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of being able to give thanks after a disaster, um, being thankful that you went through something very difficult. Uh, the concept of home or appearance versus reality, redemption, coming of age, all these different great ideas that they're kind of universal themes you see in story everywhere. Uh, and so when you see them in the text, I tell students, okay, if you see an example of a great idea, write that great idea in the margin next to that, right? And then as, as we finish a reading section and say, okay, let's see what great ideas we found and let's take at least some of the best examples of it and let's transfer those quotes into our commonplace journal. Say, say the quote, where we found it, so that you can easily look it up in its context again later, uh, and then again note the, the great idea. Um, and by doing this, you, you're building your own resource book from which you can go for inspiration on writing an, an essay or an article or a poem. 
it, you know, it could be great reference tool if you're writing a longer thesis as well. Uh, or it can just just be a pleasure to go back through your your commonplace journal and read the best of the best of the things that you've read. It's right. it's really wonderful. Uh, one thing that I do that uh, I'm not saying no one else does this, but but I have not been exposed to it elsewhere. I've taken the uh, the virtues, the the seven virtues, and then kind of tried to come up with an example of their corresponding vices as well. So. Aristotle will tell us that virtue is a mean between two vices, a mean between an excess and a deprivation of mm -hmm. that virtue. Um, and that trying to list what's the perfect vice on each side of a virtue can be difficult. And I think it's actually a bit situational to some degree. But regardless, so, you know, there's, there's prudence, temperance, fortitude, justice, faith, hope, and love, and then vices on either side. And so I give my students a list of those as well. And so let's, let's really seek those out in the books we read as well. Um, and, and so we'll discuss things like, okay, was that courage? And at first, sometimes you say, oh, yeah, that was courage. He really, man, he ran in there when it was super dangerous. You say, but wait, was that courage or was that recklessness, hmm. right? Or on the opposite side, was that cowardice when he didn't do that? Or was it wisdom that he didn't run into a stupid situation, right? right? right. And so we begin to have these discussions about the virtues and the vices, um, you know, and, and really, uh, I'm of the opinion that virtues and vices can equally be talked about as righteousness and sin. Yep. Um, you know, the Bible does use these terms uh, some, but the, the medievalists kind of pulled them out of their, I don't know, I don't want to say it that way, but regardless, we, we talk about virtues and vices, that doesn't necessarily sound like biblical language a lot of the times to people, and yet once you really start thinking about what these categories are, you see that they're all over the Bible. Right. Um, and so we, we want students to be thinking about what does it mean to be a person of character, what does it mean to be a person of virtue, uh, how do I how do I build these into my life? How do I avoid being a fool, which Proverbs has plenty to say about, Absolutely. right? Um, and so those are, those are things we look for too. And when they see good examples of those, that's a great thing to put in a commonplace journal as well. That's terrific. So those seven virtues, uh, you know, we think about, uh, especially like the theological virtues, the spiritual virtues, but uh, as Christians, but, but the seven virtues and the corresponding vices on either side and using that as a way of kind of guiding us as we're reading the great books, that's a, that's a powerful idea. That's an idea that we're going to come back to again and again and again in episodes of this podcast as we're reading specific words. Uh, and that we're going to try and encourage all of you in your reading uh, that you would also use uh, a, a framework like that. Look for ideas like that. Uh, engage your literature at that level where you're not just reading for uh, entertainment, but you're really reading for enlightenment. Yeah. And that enlightenment's going to come through identifying virtue and vice uh, in the characters and stories and arguments that you're that you're encountering. And I, this is, for me, this is the number one metric for deciding whether a book is a good book or not, actually. Yeah. Um, and, which, and, and we talk about great books, and there's more than one way to talk about great books. I think we've already mentioned this. Uh, is Mein Kampf a great book? In one sense, sure. in one sense, in that it's, it has great influence. It it's has, an important book, it's an for important sure. important book, yeah. right? Uh, but it's an evil book, yep. you know? Uh, and the same thing with when it comes to stories, especially children's stories. I think parents should be very much thinking in these categories. Yep. Um, what, what ideas, what virtues or vices are being presented to my children? Um, and it's not to say that books should be free of vice. Right. Actually, vice is a really important element in great books. It's how they treat that vice, yep. right? So 
virtue should always ultimately be rewarded. Vice should always be punished. Yes. Uh, and books that, uh, or stories in general, that teach the opposite lesson are wicked. Yes. Uh, and we, and, and some people say, well, that's really idealistic. Because, you know, in this world, bad people get away with stuff. That's just the way it is, right? But as a Christian, we'd say, no, they don't. Right. Uh, and I want to train the hearts of my students to realize that nobody lives a life of vice without destruction without consequence yeah absolutely yeah and it's true not only of books but of movies of music right what is being glorified what is being promoted here and uh and so it's an important metric like you said for identifying what is good what is true what is beautiful uh what is not and if we're not thinking in those ways in those categories then uh we're reading without discernment yeah for sure well, I think that's that's as much as we want to cover today. Uh, in our next episode, uh, we plan to begin tackling the first complete book uh, that uh, that we we plan to cover, and that is a book that I know is near and dear to your heart. I I love and appreciate it as well, but uh, Jacob loves it at a whole different level, right? What are we going to be reading? We're going to be reading Lois Lowry's The Giver, yeah. and I am ecstatic that we're doing that. I utterly love this book. As far as uh, as far as books that have been written by authors who are still living today, the Giver series is easily my favorite. Wow! I, I think that. Um, well, I don't want to get too much into it before next right. week, but but let me just say this: you got a couple weeks between seeing this or hearing this podcast and us doing that and it dropping for you. Grab the book. It's a short, easy read, yep. but it's one of the most profound examples of modern children literature. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I mean, if I were going to describe it, I would say it is a dystopian work of Christian imagination mm. um, and uh, lots of really fascinating ideas, lots of really important ideas. Uh, very easy to read. I yeah. mean, you're, you know, elementary school kids can read it and uh, profit from it. Uh, but uh, adults, the parents, they're going to read that and, and interact with it at a whole different level. I've read this book with sixth graders before um, who when they have finished and I tell them, by the way, there's three more in the series. I've had kids who don't typically read a lot as pleasure run out and get these books. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Very, very good. So that is the plan for the next episode uh, that Lois Lowry's The Giver. And again, as we said in an earlier episode, we're not trying to teach you the book. We're not trying to teach you the content of the book. This podcast is not intended to be cliff notes so that you don't have to read the book. Although in some ways, that's kind of what we did today. We gave you an outline of a book that's really meant to be a resource. If you never pick up uh, Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book and read it cover to cover, hopefully we've still given you enough of the content, enough of the uh, of the techniques and the, the structure to be able to profit from that. But from this point forward, we're going to be talking about the ideas in books, reading passages, interacting with the virtues, the vices, thinking about how to read Christianly so that we can encourage you in reading the great books. So Jacob, before we sign off, uh, how do people get in touch with us? Uh, what uh, what do they need to do? Well, we're kind of everywhere, Joel. Uh, wow. We are... <laughs> Maybe not quite everywhere. We're not, not at that level. But uh, we're on Twitter. Uh, so, you know, I am really bad at this. But we're going to put all the links in everything. So, But we are on Twitter. We're on YouTube. Uh, we have a, a uh, Substack. Uh, so... And I have, we have Tole Lege Pod and Tole Lege Podcast. I don't, I can't remember. I need a note for this for me next time. But regardless, yes, you do. regardless, um, 
yeah, if you just search us on Twitter, Tole Lege Podcast, if you search us on YouTube, Tole Lege Podcast, you're going to find us really quick. Um, and we're, we're all over the place. Very good. Yeah, we've, and, got, we've got new mics. We've, we've got, got a setup. Mics. And I right. want to say uh, we have a silent partner. We do. We, uh, Elijah Ellis, you don't see him on the screen. You're not supposed he, to see you're him. You're not supposed to see him. Actually, that something's gone wrong if you do. But uh, he's doing all our editing for us. This is one of Joel's sons, and he's doing a great job. I'm really thankful for him. Yeah, my 15-year-old who is vastly more skilled than I am at pretty much everything, but certainly about audio, video production, editing, all of that. So he's the he's the brains behind the operation. We just sit here and talk about books. So. Yeah. I love it. I just show up. <laughs> well, Jacob, it's been fun. Appreciate it, brother. Absolutely. It's been a good time. Very good. All right. Take up and read. The Tole Lege Podcast is produced, filmed, and edited by Elijah Ellis. Music composed by Eric Welch. Copyright The Tole Lege Podcast, 2022. Can't hold